As Brian mentioned, the last few weeks we've been looking at some passages out of the book of Revelation. And today we come to that final chapter, chapter 22. We're going to read just a short passage uh, out of this final chapter. And yet in this short passage we have three different voices. We first of all have the angel who's been speaking to John and guiding him through this vision. Then we have Jesus himself speaking. And then John gives us a further word of encouragement. So let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the word of God, as revealed through his servant John. The angel speaks. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Jesus speaks. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so John gives us this encouragement. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to eat of the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. May God bless the reading of his word. Often mentioned to you how important the first words of a book are and the last words of a book. Anytime you're reading any book, but especially a book of the Bible, it's important to really pay attention to those opening words because for the most part within the first paragraph or two, the direction of the book is set. Uh, The author gives you his agenda and many of the subjects that he wants to discuss. And then when you come to the end of the book, it's really time to wake up again because at the end of the book, he's going to kind of summarize many of the things he said, and in some cases, and in particularly in this case, some exhortation for you to remember what's been in that book and to consider what's been in that book and to, to build your life on that and to put these things into practice. So we come now tonight to the final words in the book of Revelation, and they're very important because not only are they the final words of the book of Revelation, But according to the way our Bible is arranged, they're the final words in all of our Bible. And so that's why these words are very important to us and certainly deserve some of our time to consider, to ponder, to, and as John is going to encourage us then, to put these things into practice. In our journey through Revelation, we've really not looked at all of the book of Revelation, and some of you may have been disappointed in that, because I'm sure that you've got some ideas that you would like to have explored about all these battles and all these things going on, but this trip through the book of Revelation, we particularly focused upon the pictures of heaven. Uh, What heaven is like now, as we go along with this earth as it exists now, and then also what heaven will be like in the new heaven, when the new heaven descends and and is united with the new earth in that vision of the kingdom of God being throughout all of the universe. And in doing so, we've noticed several things. First thing we've noticed is that there is a connection between heaven and earth. Now, we're aware of that connection in some way. We're aware of the connection that 
what we are doing on this earth right now really will affect us for eternity. I mean, that's one of the basic premises of Christianity, isn't it? That who you are right now matters because who you are right now and what you do right now will really set your destiny for all of eternity. But also part of the revelation of revelation is that what's going on in heaven has a connection to this earth. And that what is happening in the spiritual realm really does matter to this earth as well. That it shapes us and forms us and and that we can gain strength from what is going on in heaven right now. We keep pulling back this curtain, you know. Have you seen my curtain? I'm going to put it up. You're not going to have to look at it again for a while. But there's this curtain here that stands between the physical and the spiritual. And the, the spiritual is not only as real as the physical, it's really even more real than the physical. But yet it's something we can't see. And yet the book of Revelation has pulled the curtain back so that we can peer into the spiritual realm and see the connection between earth and heaven, but more importantly, between heaven and earth. We've also learned that the new heaven is portrayed not as the garden like paradise was at the beginning of Scripture, and we've also noticed that Scripture begins with paradise and ends with paradise. In the beginning, though, paradise was a garden. But in the end, it will be a city. And the city portrays to us that it will be a place of community where all of humanity who has, has come to God will be joined together and will live together. We also talked about how the original paradise was lost because of an act of selfishness, because the, those original people turned inward and, and decided that they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And There's one thing that God will always let you do is what you want to do. And because of that act, then paradise was lost. But paradise was reestablished as the city of God through an act of unselfishness, through a complete act of sacrifice, where the one being who ever lived that did not deserve to die, died for us, was willing to give himself up for us in order to reestablish paradise, reestablish our ability then to go and to live in paradise. And there in paradise, we will be living beyond ourselves. And, and oftentimes when we talk about living in heaven, we, we think about breaking out of the, the bounds of this physical body that we'll be giving a spiritual body and things will be different. Well, not only will we break outside the bounds of this physical body, we'll break outside the bounds of ourselves. And one of the pictures of heaven is that finally we will be delivered from this this prison that we so easily find ourselves locked in of really thinking about ourselves, that perfect community will be there, that we will be joined together as God has called us all through Scripture to attempt to do is to really reach out and to love one another and to care for one another. Well, in paradise, that will be a total reality that none of us who are there will be captive within ourselves and thinking only of ourselves. And also one more thing that we've noticed along the way is that the church 
is called by the visions of heaven. That the visions of heaven are not just something that we look forward to and think, oh, it's going to be great to be there someday. That as we read about heaven, we realize that we are called upon as the church to bring a taste of heaven to this earth. That what we will be like in heaven, we should, with the help of God and the help of His Spirit, duplicate or replicate as much as humanly possible here on this earth. As when we live in heaven, it'll be a place of acceptance, of inclusion, of healing, and of life. When we gather together as God's people and as His church, those who enter our doors and those who come to us find us to be a place of acceptance and inclusion and love and healing and life. Uh, We can't build the golden city and the gates of pearl and all of those things right now, but we can be those things with one another. And we can let people know that one day something even better than this is coming along. But right now, we already have a taste of what it's like to live in harmony, not only with God, but with each other. So those are some of the things that we've looked at along the way. Now let's hear some of these final words. Verse 10, the angel tells John he's given him all this vision of what's going on in heaven and then what's to be whenever the new heaven emerges and unites with the new earth. And he says, now, don't seal up this book of prophecy. If we were saying it today, we would say, don't shut the book and put it on the shelf. Uh, Books that I have sort of have a journey. When I'm reading a book, it usually lives in my backpack and goes back and forth from church to home so that when I have a moment, I can pull it out and begin to read it. And once I've read it and think, you know, there's parts of that I want to go back and consider again, but I've sort of made my way through it, then it goes on my desk. And if any of y'all have ever seen my desk, there's a lot of books that live on my desk. Right? So then it goes on my desk. And then whenever I get this, this uh, spurt of energy and decide that my desk is going to either collapse or everything's going to fall over and it's time to put some of those books somewhere else, then the books go on the shelf. And then every once in a while, my shelves get full, and so I have to do something with the books. So I get boxes, and I box them up, and they go to the garage. All right? John's saying, don't put this book in the garage. Don't even put it on the shelf. Don't even put it on your desk. But leave it open before you. Because this book has told you the way things really are. This book has pulled the curtain back. This book has said this is what's reality. This is what's going on now. And this is what will happen in the future. And this book must influence who you are. It must help you determine what you're going to do with your life. It has to be the determining factor in your decisions of who you're going to be, what you're going to do with this precious gift of life that you've been given. He goes on to say that by giving us this vision, by letting us know what is real, and by letting us know not only what is happening but what will happen, That God has basically done, given our free will that we just mentioned, given the ability he has given us to do what we want to do, given all of that, then basically God has done what he can do. He has told us the way things are. He has told us the way things will be. And so now it's up to you. 
and to me. Do I believe that or not? Do I sort of believe it and file it aside and close the book and put it up and go and live the way I want to live? Or do I let this really determine who I am? In verse 11, in a very succinct and scary and reassuring way, (laughs) it's both frightening, verse 11 is, but it's also very reassuring. The angel speaks and says, from now on, let the evildoer keep doing evil. Let the filthy remain filthy. Because, in other words, do what you want to do. You know the truth. Here it is. But also let the righteous still do righteousness. And let the holy still be holy. Now that God's will has been spread out before you, go and be who you want to be. Do you want to go and to live your life as you choose to live it? Do you want to go and live your life according to the wisdom of this world? Do you want to be led by your own desires? Do you want to be led by your own ideas? Or do you want to be led by God? Do you want to be led by His Spirit? Do you want to do righteousness? Do you want to be holy? It's really now that God has revealed who he is to us. It's your choice. But look at the next verse where Jesus raises his hand and says, but you can can go do what you choose to do. And God has already done what he can do by telling you what is real and what is true and what is false and what is unreal. But do know that I am coming back one day. And when I come back, then you will be judged according to the choices you have made. That you will be held accountable for the truth that you have known. That whether or not you have decided to blend in with God's reality to make that your reality or you've decided to go and try to create your own reality and to live life the way that you see fit even though it doesn't really square with what God has said is real. Jesus says, do know that there will come a time where I will come back and we will hold this vision of reality before you And we'll see how you measure up. Well, what are we who believe in God's vision of reality? And we want to be a part of that. What are we to do? You know, if if that was the final word of the book of Revelation, I'd kind of be scared to read it. Because I know myself, and I know that while I want to believe this, and I do leave the book open, And I do go back and visit the book. And I do let the book speak to me. That getting my life to square with it is hard. That that I don't always do it well. And sometimes I just run counter into it, seem like as fast as I can. What am I to do if I do believe this and I want to be one of those who is still doing righteousness? And I want to be one of those who is still doing holiness. Well, verse 14 speaks to us and speaks to us strongly because it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. 
A person that keeps coming up in my conversations I have with you is uh, Charles Seibert. Uh, got to know Charles back when I was in high school. He was in grad school. His dad was the preacher at the church where I was uh, growing up. And uh, Charles has remained a very strong influence all through my life. He now is at ACU, one of the deans there and a professor. And, but I remember when I was graduated from high school, uh, Charles is very interesting. If you know Charles, he, he's, he's pretty much an authority on a lot of things legitimately. But when he was in grad school, he really thought he was the authority. And so he, he and if you know what I mean. But one day he was at home and at church, he got about three or four of us college boys, seniors, appropriate for Senior Sunday, and he knew we were about ready to go. He recruited us to go sell Bibles with him, but he said, you guys need to come over to my house and we need to talk. So we went over to his house and he sat us down. He began to tell us how we were to live our lives in college. And one of the things he said has really stuck with me. He said, don't you dare bring your laundry home for mama to do. Because you are not grown up until you do your own laundry. I took that to heart. I don't know, Pat, that's why I probably still do my own laundry. Pat has, this has been one of the struggles of our marriage because she sees it sort of as one of her motherly, wifely duties is to do the whole family's laundry. I still do my own most of the time. And I run ahead of her. And maybe it's that seed that was planted there. That you're not grown up until you do your own laundry. You know, laundry is a rather mundane task to do. Laundry is not very exciting to do. Back in John's day, it wasn't nearly as easy as it is for us now to do. Doing the laundry was a lot of work. But it's a necessary thing to be done. And so John tells us that if you want to be one of those that whenever Jesus returns, that you're shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah, he's back, he's back. If you want to be one of those who lives within the vision of his reality and lives with the assurance that when he comes back, it will not be to judge but to embrace. Then what John encourages us is to make sure you keep up with your laundry. Keep doing those clothes. Keep washing your robes. A couple of points on that verse. One is, I know you always love it when we talk Greek here, but that word right there is a present active infinitive. Plunontes, keep washing your robe. It doesn't mean just do it once, but it says keep up with it. Continue to wash your robes. You know, the idea of being washed goes back to like in Acts chapter 22, verse 14, where Paul doesn't know what to do after he's seen his vision of the Lord. And, and Ananias comes to him and says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. That it has to be done beginning with the act of baptism. That if you want to blend in with the reality of God, then you will submit to the act of baptism. You will begin that washing process. Because that's what baptism is described all through Scripture as a washing away of our sins. But it's something we continue doing. And we, we look to John, this John who wrote some letters. And in 1 John chapter 1, he doesn't talk about washing as much as he talks about walking in the light. And as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, what happens to us? If we keep at it, 
that the blood of Jesus Christ continues to wash away our sins. If we go back to chapter 7 or chapter 4 in this book, no, it's chapter 7. I'm sorry, there's one in four, one in seven. It's in chapter 7. It talks about washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb. So those of us who want to live within the reality of God, we submit to the act of baptism, and then we live our lives in his light, washing our clothes, continually confessing our sins, knowing that we stand only before him by his grace and his mercy. And then we have this great invitation. Jesus holds his hand out to us, and verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, Come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let everyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The number one requirement to go to heaven is to want to. Is it that hard? The number one requirement to be near God is to really want to be near God. Here it's described as a thirst. And that the water is there if you'll come and if you'll drink it. And if you come drinking it knowing that it is a gift. I got to tell you a quick story. (laughs) Any of you ever read Flannery O'Connor? Cheryl, I know you read Flannery O'Connor. You got to read some Flannery O'Connor. You better be holding on when you read Flannery O'Connor. Flannery was an amazing woman, died at a very young age. She was a Southern writer, wrote back in the 30s and 40s, and uh, died in the early 60s, I think, wasn't it? Anyway, um, she uh, uh, wrote very offensive material. The language she uses will jar you, and you'll think, this is just not right. But that's what she's doing it for, is to let you know that there are things that are wrong in this world, and particularly let us know that there are things that are wrong in our attitude. She wrote a story, a short story called Revelation. And it was her take on the book of Revelation, but it's in a very interesting form. It's about a woman who goes to the doctor, and she walks into the doctor's waiting room. Her name is Miss Turpin. And as she walks into the room, she begins to immediately assess all the people that are in the room with her. And her assessment basically is that not many of those people are really worthy to sit in the room with her because of their race, because of their socioeconomic status, because of their education level. There's only one woman sitting in that room that she feels really is worthy to have a conversation with. And that woman is sitting there with her daughter who is an epileptic, there for a doctor's checkup. Her daughter is reading a book. Her daughter is scowling at her. And anyway, the conversation ensues, and some of the others enter into it as well. And basically, Ms. Turpin is always thinking, these people are really not good enough to talk to me. And she's so thankful that God has made her who she is, that, that he did not make her the wrong color, And that he did not put her in this world as poor, white, and as Flannery says, trash. Well, as she's thinking that, she just gets so carried away. And someone says something stupid, and she thinks how stupid it is. And so in her mind, she's thinking, oh, I'm so grateful that God gave me a brain. I'm so grateful that God made me better than that. And she out loud just bursts out and says, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. And at that point, the girl who's reading her book picks it up and throws it at her and hits her in the head with it. 
and then falls on the ground and goes into an epileptic fit. And Miss Turpin bends over to her and for some reason thinks that this is a sign because it really not only hurts her head, but hurts her heart. And she looks at the girl and says, do you have something to say to me? It's always a debate by scholars. Does she mean by that you're supposed to say I'm sorry? Or is she looking for some kind of word from this girl? And the girl looks at her and growls. Should I say what she said, Cheryl? You go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And you would think that that would be offensive to her, but it really cuts to her heart. Because she begins to realize that's exactly what she is. That in her judgmental attitude and in her concern about herself, she goes back home and she's out feeding the hogs and looking at them and thinking, is that who I really am? And she looks up into heaven and she has her own vision. And the vision is a road going into heaven. And all the people walking in and rejoicing and loving and praising God. But what she notices is that ahead of her are the people who are the wrong color. Ahead of her are the people who are poor white trash. And she's going in, but she's the last and only by the grace of God. This is the final word of the book of Revelation, is that it comes to us as a gift. And that if we treasure that gift and we realize that we can be there. You know, that's one of the things we've got to believe Yes, we can be there. We really can be a part of that glorious scene. But it is only by the gift of God. And it is only because we come to Him for His mercy and His grace. And that is why we can then say at the, at the, with John at the end of the book, when Jesus says, I'm coming and I'm coming soon, we can join with Him and say, Amen. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's stand and sing.